Mouthing Off is a theater, arts, and culture podcast from Bad Mouth Theater Company in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Amanda Forstrom. I'm Kevin Couchman. And I'm Mari Sidner. Mouthing Off features compelling interviews and discussions with creators and artists from around the Twin Cities and beyond. Tune in for something different online where you get your podcasts at badmouthtc.com and on the air in St. Paul from Frogtown Radio 94.1 FM. We hope you enjoy the show. We're back with another fun, exciting, interesting episode, I hope. I'm sure. In fact, I'm certain it's going to be a very interesting episode of Mouthing Off, a theater arts and culture podcast from Bad Mouth Theater Company. I'm Kevin Couchman. And as usual, as ever, I'm joined by the dynamic duo. They complete the trilogy. Mari Sittner. Mari, how are you? Doing great. Ready for another exciting episode? Exciting is a word. It's going to be. I, I'm really excited about this. I have a lot of reasons why I will uh, tell them uh, shortly. And then Amanda Forster. Amanda, what's going on? Not too much. I'm excited as well. And uh, yeah, this is going to be a good one. I think it's going to be a deep dive into mm. into some some creative darkness, which I know, you know, very well, Kevin. So, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm ready for it. Oh, yeah. We'll talk all about it. And I want to introduce our guest. And I think you'll you'll see there's a very interesting local connection to a subject that maybe some people don't know has a Minnesota connection, Ernest Hemingway. Ernest is not our guest. He's unavailable. Uh, but we're joined by John Rosengren, who is an author and a journalist living in the Twin Cities. John, how are you? Hi, Kevin, Amanda, and Mari. Uh, it's great to be here. I thought you were, oh, I was getting all excited myself. I was thinking you were going to get Ernest on the line. I wondered how you uh, do that. Right, right, right. Well, we're going to not rap on the table, drink a drink a daiquiri, uh, pet some cats, and uh, load the shotgun. Not go trap <laughs> shooting. <laughs> right. And, yeah. And, and be very, very careful. Um, John and I have a little bit of history. And uh, we first came into contact through a project that I did at History Theater. And they're they're going to be on soon to talk about a production of theirs they have coming up called Diesel Heart. Uh, I worked on a play for them uh, some years ago about Ernest Hemingway and his time at Mayo Clinic. And John and I met through this. And John went on and did some amazing uh, work and research and journalism around Hemingway's final days at Mayo and uh, wrote an article and all the rest of it. So, John, do you care to tell people a little bit about that piece? And I, I mean, what did you learn about Hemingway? I know you have stories. Yeah. Well, I have you to thank. I think you were one of the people who tipped me off to the fact that Hemingway had been at Mayo of course, everyone you know recognizes Ernest Hemingway's name, and everyone knows the Mayo Clinic. But very few people, including people like me, you know, an English major, a writer, someone who loved Hemingway, um, I didn't know he'd been at the Mayo Clinic. So um, when I heard that, I got fascinated by that and wanted to explore it. And I uh, started researching, and uh, I talked to some people who had been down in Rochester who had. Uh, been around the Mayo Clinic when Hemingway was there. I went down to the Mayo Clinic, went through their archives. I um, read, you know, what, everything I could in the various books that have chronicled his time. Uh, though most of the books just sort of 
um, they skim over it. They uh, mention his time at Mayo, but it's not a focal point. And um, I also uh, did some research through the Kennedy Library in Boston, which has uh, Hemingway's letters and Mary Walsh's, his uh, fourth wife's letters and uh, other documents of theirs. So I had, I had a chance to go through all that and <clears throat> wrote this article from Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine about the two stints he had at Mayo Clinic. And then the, um, of course, the, he went through electroshock therapy and um, it seemed to relieve the depression a bit after the first episode, first uh, couple of months there. But then uh, he returned to catch him, was remained suicidal, went back to the Mayo Clinic. They released, he convinced the doctors that he was ready to go home. And of course, uh, less than a week later, <clears throat> we realized the therapy didn't work. And Mary said when she came to pick him up the second time, this is his fourth wife, the final wife, uh, that he was smiling like a Cheshire cat. Mm. And uh, and of course, when they had tried to bring him back the second time, when they brought him back the second time, the plane landed in Rapid City to refuel, and he tried to walk into the propeller. Uh, yeah, I think that's the story Hotchner says. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, pretty heavy, pretty dramatic stuff. So they, they locked him up. And yeah, when I first heard about this, I just couldn't believe it. I had no idea. And now you go online and you talk to very literary people and they'll go, yeah, everybody knows that. And I'm like, no, no, they don't. Do you know that, Amanda? No, I absolutely did not know about his connection to Mayo Clinic at all. And so the first time I heard that, Kevin, was from you and your play as well. And I just am curious, John, when you were when you read Kevin's play or you saw it, was there a full production, Kevin? Uh, it was, they had two readings at History Theater. That's yet okay. to be produced. Mm. Ah, interesting. Have to remedy that. Mm. Yes. Um, John, was there a particular scene or moment that you heard from Kevin's play that surprised you about Hemingway? And then did was there another moment that spurred you to do more research well, I hadn't had a chance. Kevin was kind enough to let me read the screen or the script, but I don't think I read that prior to diving into the article. Um, what I remember of Kevin's script is some of the artistry, and and I remember the masks and the dancing and the people coming in and out. Um, and so I was when I read Kevin's script, I think I was more interested in the creative uh, presentation and the artistic representation that he had uh, of those events. But I think, you know, in reading Hemingway's letters, it's obvious. I mean, this is a guy who was, uh, well, everybody knows, you know, Nobel Prize winner, perhaps the greatest writer of his day, uh, or, or at least top two, three, you know. Fitzgerald <laughs> would have a, would have a uh, pick with that. But <laughs> I know, he, I know he wouldn't. He, of course, comes to mind and that's the inevitable uh, uh, rivalry, right? But but along with Fitzgerald, I mean, it, 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 right up there with the great Gatsby, um, Faulkner, Hemingway's work, and yeah, Faulkner overrated. No, and of course Hemingway didn't like Faulkner either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going to get into the Northerner, right? A Yankee, of course, of course. There yeah, I go. mean, I I have to say this. So the the Art of Darkness episode, my other podcast, ArtofDarkPod.com, I'm getting ready to do 
the profile of Hemingway, which will probably go four or five hours. I've got my stack of books here. And uh, the the writer we're having on is a, a rather accomplished uh, novelist in his own right working now. His name's Aaron Gwynn, but he is a, a, a boy from Oklahoma and he has his own sub stack that's entirely about Blood Meridian. And he came on for our Faulkner episode and he regularly takes shots at Fitzgerald. Ooh. And I... I always try to to stand up for the for the local boy for sure. Yeah. 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 So there is that dynamic, isn't there, John? I'm sorry, you you were saying. There is. But you know, I um there was one uh, kind of to answer a question your question, Amanda. Something that came across in my research that I don't think had been reported before. And and there were some several of these nuggets that turned up, but one of them was um the daughter of one of the physicians who treated Hemingway when he was at Mayo Clinic told me this story. And, and this was, um, he had two main doctors, uh, Hugh Butt and Howard Rome. Rome was the psychiatrist, Butt was the internist. And Hugh Butt's daughter, and, and Hugh Butt had invited Hemingway to come spend time at his home during his stay at uh, the Mayo Clinic when he needed to just get away from the hospital. So Hemingway was, was over there and this 12-year-old girl um, was there with a friend and Hemingway said it flexed his stomach, which was kind of like this party trick he used to do, uh, like Henry Houdini. And he said, go ahead, punch me in the stomach, hit me as hard as you can. And I thought it was so sad and pathetic that here's this man who's not really an old man. He's 61 years old, but he looks like he's 85. And he is trying to impress these 12 year old girls with his physical strength. And, um, it just, it seemed like such a poignant moment, um, you know, viewed, especially from these little girls view uh, through their eyes of like, who is this man? What's he about? Mm-hmm. You you spent time in Ketchum too, in, in Idaho. You really went hard. You went yeah. down to Rochester. Mm-hmm. You interviewed the doctor's mm-hmm. families, all of it. Yeah. What did yeah, you find I, in I Idaho? Mm-hmm. I actually went to Idaho after I'd uh, done the article because I was thinking about writing a book about this. And I, um, yeah, I got to spend time in Hemingway's house and at the Ketchum Library, where he um, they they have a big a great collection of uh, archives of Hemingway um, ephemera and um, uh, work and um, other recordings of interviews with people who knew Hemingway, especially uh, from Ketchum, and got to you know visit the sites, the bars where he hung out, and the, where I sat at the table where he had his last meal. Um, mm. Anyway, we, we he thought the FBI agents were at the bar, right? Uh, that yeah, I think mm-hmm. so. That uh, mm-hmm. night. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I had a chance to kind of immerse myself in that. I, I inter- uh, interviewed the nurse who had wrestled the shotgun shell out of his hand uh, in April of 1961 when he was um, between visits and so wanted to shoot himself in his home. Is that that's when Mary? He was in the vestibule where he would finally do it. And he had two shotgun shells. Was this a separate time from the time that Mary Mary found him? Yeah, with the this two was shells? a separate time. It was right before there. He, he had. It was after that episode with Mary, and he'd been taken to the hospital in uh, Sun Valley. And and um, uh, actually, I snuck in there. That place is under construction now. <laughs> so I walked around right. in there when no one was there. But anyway, so. He was at the hospital. Then they drove him home to get some stuff, and he was going to then fly to back to Rochester to go to Mayo Clinic again. I remember this now. And mm. so uh, he 
they drove up his drive and he jumped out of the car and ran inside. And by the time they got there, he was with the doctor and the nurse and another a neighbor uh, friend. And um, by the time he got inside or they got inside, Hemingway already had the shotgun and he had two shells and he was trying to jam them into the, or the shotgun. And so this nurse was one of the people who wrestled the shell out of his hand. <clears throat> so living with this for a while and doing this research, I have so many questions. Uh, I'm going to tag something Amanda said earlier, a question, and it's sort of like, what, what do you think was at the heart of, of this? Because I know everyone has opinions there's the great Burns documentary that came out a few years ago, Ken Burns, uh, that kind of glances at it. That's a very fine documentary, but I feel like you could do, it could have been a 20-part documentary. Uh, I mean, they did it in three parts, mm -hmm. 90 minutes apiece. Uh, I guess I guess I'm asking, what do you think was at the root of it for him, that decision to, to end it? Well, you know, I'm... A journalist and a, an author. I am not a psychiatrist. Um, and so uh, this is really outside or above my pay grade, you know, outside <laughs> my area of expertise. But from what I've read and and in talking to people, the theory that makes most sense to me is Andrew Farr's theory that he had uh, a CTE and that it, so it was brain damage as a result of all these blows he'd received to his head. And, and it, what we've learned about CTE, of course, is it doesn't have to just be a concussion. It, it is these subconcussive blows, you know, that he could have gotten while boxing or playing football or even the mortar shell going off when he was 19 years old in Italy. Um, and so I think the accumulation of those uh, took its toll on his brain. And, and, and in that Ken Burns documentary, do you remember the scene where he's doing a television interview and he's reading the cue cards? And he's, but he's reading the punctuation as well. Yeah, he, be able to differentiate. I mean, right. I mean, was he being clever or was he that far no, out of it? I wow. didn't. It, to me, it didn't appear that he's, he was being clever. I mean, it just seemed to me like this was a man in a, a fog, a mental haze. He was not thinking clearly. And, and you know, this great mind that's gone to a uh, uh, bad. Uh, and so I, mm. I, I, that seems to make sense to me, CT, but then of course the alcohol, I'm sure, you know, the mm. hard drinking for many years, you know, had a cumulative effect and negative effect on his brain. And so it would seem to me, and, and, and it's, he appeared to be a man who was lived with depression and uh, you know, obviously the suicides in the family. So he had a lot of, I think it was a cumulative effect of all these factors that uh, ultimately, cause him to take his life. I mean, again, not a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, not an expert, but just from what I've learned, that seems to make sense to me. And how many uh, electroshock therapy treatments did he have at Mayo? And do you think this exacerbated that CTE? Well, you know, that it's a good question. I don't remember the exact number. I think it was um, dozens um, be, between the first and second, the, um, I think the standard regimen was like three a week or something. And Andy Fair was in his book said something. And then I had a chance to interview him as well. And he was saying that it, um, didn't seem to uh, CT didn't, or the electroshock therapy, um, doesn't seem to be effective with people who have CTE. And so it was like, 
it didn't seem like he came out of it or ahead uh, and and just he came, he was hurt. It does affect memory. And that was something that really troubled him. And he said he had trouble writing uh, as a result, too. Uh, and, so it seemed to harm him more than it helped him, actually. And and these his medical records from Mayo are still not have not been released, correct? I have a feeling we'll never see those unless one of the grandchildren gets them. Wow. Wow. Two things. He had one of the, the most humorous brain injuries or like injuries to his head uh, that anyone has ever sustained. And this was in France. I can't remember the year, uh, but he probably he'd probably been drinking. I'm just going to go out on a limb and guess uh, he he thought he was flushing the toilet. But he managed to pull down like a window a onto skylight, his head, yeah. like a skylight onto his own head. And it was quite severe, enough that it's like noted in all of the, the documentaries and, uh, you know, the, the literature on him. Yeah, um, I think he was drunk that night and uh, by his own admission. And uh, he had a scar to show for the rest of his life. Um, yeah. uh, just it, it's it's. I mean, it is a little comical. <laughs> you think you're going for a flush? <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Mari. Well, yeah, I'm. I'm so curious if you have any more knowledge about some of the injuries that he sustained over the years, because I think people know that he lived kind of a rough and tumble lifestyle. But the just the sheer amount of concussions that he had throughout his life, I think people don't. I think people don't know about that. Right. Well, there are two plane crashes and a couple of car accidents and a motorcycle accident. And um, then the the uh, uh, skylight incident that uh, or toilet flushing had gone, gone amiss. Um, and then um, the mortar shell that uh, exploded when he was injured in Italy in World War One. I. I think that was also a concussion. So it's, it's something like six or seven um, documented concussions which is a lot over a lifetime. But then too, as I mentioned, it's the subconcussive blows that seem to have the especially deteriorating um, effect, you know, uh, uh, as they're accumulated, which is, um, he had to share those too. And so, I mean, I think this guy, the poor guy, you know, his brain really took a bleeding. And is this something that they were kind of aware of at the time where they were thinking about you know, uh, encephalitis and inflammation kind of at the time that he died? Or is this something that's come a little bit more into fashion recently? Because I know there's been a lot of in the past, like 20 years, we've been talking about concussions and head injuries, obviously, with some of the things that have happened to football players. So is this kind of a new conclusion or? Definitely a new conclusion. And Andy Farrow wrote this book about that, uh, Hemingway's Brain, with positing this theory, because it has been only the last 10, 15 years, we've really gotten to understand CT and and what it is and how it it comes about. And so at the time, you know, like back in 1961, um, you know, I I, talking to people who played sports back then, you know, like someone would get their bell rung. Uh, We didn't even use the term concussion, but they'd get their bell rung and the coach would hold up I had a coach, a hockey coach tell me this. He said, we'd hold up, a, a, you know, a, some fingers and say, how many fingers am I holding up? And we'd be holding up two and the guy would say three and they'd say, you're fine, go back in. And so, I mean, there was just no, no understanding of this or um, really any, um, I, I don't, I don't think it even comes up in the um, 
uh, letters that Dr. Rome, the psychiatrist, writes. You know, uh, so it, it, it was like today we have a much better understanding, just you and I as lay people, I think, than the doctors did back then. And brain science, even now, is still a very mm. young science. And mm. so, yeah, the, there are a couple of things around Hemingway and the doctoring that he received, uh, where they mentioned this in the Burns documentary, which I just watched, um, preparing for that other that other podcast. And um, they talk about this woman in there has a fabulous quote saying, "The people who get the worst uh, health care are the very poor and the very rich." Very poor because they can't really access it. They can't advocate for themselves. And they're very rich because they can get whatever they want. Mm. And the implication being that Hemingway was getting drugs from doctors, friends. He was on some sort of a witch's brew cocktail of medication for a period there as well. Uh, and then, of course, well, let's just say it, he was struggling with impotence uh, as a consequence of some of these. And for a man like Hemingway, that no doubt had some downstream effects uh, in terms of his own kind of crumbling psyche. One one point that I think, um, and I'm curious to ask you about this too, John, um, that I think is, is, is sometimes overlooked is how devastating losing Cuba was for him. And that house, when they when they finally were unable to go back to Cuba, that was where his his books were there, his art was there. His, that was really his home for the majority of his adult life. And then, because of La Revolution, right, he wasn't able to um, to go back. And I think that really devastated and un, unrooted him. You think about somebody who's used to getting up with the dawn and then writing in under the balmy trees and the sunshine, and now you're in. Ketchum, Idaho. And not that I'm sure Ketchum's a lovely town, but those winters are long and hard. I'm sure that had a little effect too. Have you been, John, to Key West, uh, where he where he had the, the, the house with the cats or to uh Cuba? I've been to Key West. I haven't been to Cuba. Have you been to the the Finca? I no, I want to go to I want to go to both places. I want to see the cats in in Key West and I want to go see the Finca. I'd love to see Havana. Uh I mean, obviously, right? Yeah, yeah. no. Yeah, yeah, that, it's a trip I'd very much like to take. But I think it's a good point you make that he—that uh, was another big loss in his life. Uh, and and at the time, you know, he didn't. He, it wasn't just losing his home. I mean, losing his home was huge, right? Uh, and as you and all that goes with it, the climate, um, but also the books, the art, everything that was there. I mean, I don't think he knew if he'd be able to get that back or if it was just gone. And so. That was a, a, a devastation as, as well, a huge blow. Well, and we're talking about art from the period in the 20s in Paris. So we're talking about pretty priceless stuff. And didn't Mary go down there and she was greeted by Castro? I have a little anecdote where she wanted to bring, she said she wanted to bring some of the stuff back. And apparently Castro put a hand on her shoulder and said, no, these belong to the Cuban people now. It's like we're not making exceptions for you, uh, uh, Mary. Um, well, and so, yeah, go ahead, Amanda. No, I'd like to, if it's okay with you guys, ask a question about how Hemingway met Mary as journalists in Europe and her connection to Minnesota and how they ended up back there other than just at the Mayo. Um what right, because she there? had cousins in in Bemidji, right? I think you talk about that in your article, John. Yeah, well, she grew up in that area, and then um, they were in London. Um, Mary was there, 
report on the war and Hemingway came through and they were both married to other people and Hemingway flirted with her. And apparently the story is that he asked her to marry him on their, the second time he saw her. Um, and so uh, I think there was something in her that, you know, really attracted him to her. And you know, I think I'm, she was probably, uh, she it downplays it in her, her memoir, but I mean, I can only imagine you know, just about any woman at that time in the early 40s, meaning Ernest Hemingway, I mean, it's like, you know, good looking, virulent uh, man, great author, you know, he's this legend. I would think just about any woman would fall for him at that time. Although I got to say too, that he probably had this attitude that would turn a lot of women off as well. So I think there might've been a little of that going on with uh, Mary too, a love hate, but um, certainly he got her attention. <clears throat> yeah. Well, right. I'm curious what the, it, what their, you know, how their early courtship of this fast and hard romance turned into this sort of, you know, man that she didn't really recognize anymore and he didn't recognize himself and how his, you know, period of drinking and every time he hit his head and all of the trauma sort of affected their marriage and how she ended up taking him to the Mayo Clinic. Well, my sense is Henry could be very cruel and mm -hmm. say pretty mean, nasty things. And, you know, we tend to hurt those closest to us the most. And it seems he did that often with Mary. And there are times she was certain she was going to leave him but uh, somehow she didn't manage to. And I, I think after a while, it, it just got so bad the way he was treating her and his depression that she said, he's got to get help. And she sought the, the counsel of a couple friends and um, they wanted to send him to a psychiatric uh, hospital, but they were certain he'd refuse that because of the publicity. And so they were able to get him to the Mayo Clinic under the guise of him going in for his blood pressure. But it was, you know, from the start, it was obvious he was there for psychiatric help. Yeah, that was the cover story. He agreed to go in. Uh, yes, I'm going in for my blood pressure. And there's some implication that it, they were almost kind of lying to themselves, too. It wasn't even clear. Did he even know? But I mean, yeah, he knew. And what is this really? And Mary right. was very hesitant. Um, if I can speak to this a little bit, Amanda, she was very hesitant um, to to commit to him because of the drinking. She really wanted him to cool off on the, on the drinking, but finally she, she succumbed to, I, to his force. Yeah. And I suppose there was this, you know, because he is this legend, this character that everybody knows there is some sort of, you know, when you're in that situation, you want to care for those who you love, but this was on a whole other level. How could she leave this legendary, character, you know, to, to fend for himself or to try to get treatment when she knows, you know, that he never would. So. Yeah. Hemingway was never a guy who was going to go into an AA meeting. That was never going to happen. I, although that might've been the very best thing for him. It's hard to imagine uh, Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> yeah, touchy feely type, right? Yeah, no, no, not very much. Um, 
Well, John, let, let's get to know you a little bit more. I'm sure people are curious. Uh, I know you have a website. It's it's your name, um, John Rosengren. I'll make sure that it is that it is in the show notes at badmouthtc.com. And you're a, you're a native son of, of the great state of Minnesota. And, 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 uh, and sorry, just back to the website for a moment. If you, John Rosengren. Dot net. Oh, I'm sorry, John. Because if people dot go net. to dot com, they find the realtor in Illinois. <laughs> dot net. That's my bad. That's my bad, yeah. y'all. I'll make sure that it's right at our website, John Rosengren dot net. There's always some realtor out there somewhere, uh, you know, who's grabbing up the name. Um, but yeah, John. And, and so I guess tell us a little bit about your story as a as a writer. I'm sure you encountered Hemingway very young, and I, I suspect he had an influence on you. you you're a novelist. You've written yeah. on baseball. Uh, you've traveled the world. You've got a very interesting uh, background. Well, I, I, so I was uh, an English major at St. John's University. And the fall semester of my senior year, I did a study abroad in London, and then we did the Europe by U-Rail whirlwind tour. And I'd been to Paris, and then we were down in Florence, Italy, and uh, in an English-language bookstore, I picked up a copy of A Movable Feast. And that was the first time I read that. And we, I was with my girl, college girlfriend at the time. We happened to return to Paris, and then... Um, we had a fight one night and about 10 o'clock at night, I went out and I walked the city and retraced all of Hemingway's haunts or, you know, I retraced his footsteps through the Latin quarter and went to all his haunts. And um, it, 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 he had a grip on me. I think um, it, I, I had a fascination with him and with his life. And of course, Mouville Feast, he's writing about his life as a writer in Paris as a young man. And there's something very romantic about that. So when I graduated from college, I knew I wanted to be a writer and I got a job as an au pair in Paris, a jeune homme au pair. This was before we had the term Manny in our lexicon. So <laughs> I um, went over there and I did have these romantic notions about writing and thinking, you know, if I just showed up in Paris, the muse would sleep with me and I'd be able to turn out great uh, literature. But I learned very quickly that that alone won't make a writer out of someone it's discipline. One has to sit down and write every day. And so that's what I did. And that's, I think that was probably the most valuable lesson I learned while I was there that I just had to write every day. And I did. And um, I came back to the US. I was able to get a collection of short stories I'd written during that time published and um, called Life is Just a Party. And it was, um, Hemingway also had said Paris is a necessary part of a young man's education. And it was for me because I learned that. But I also, coming from the Midwest, uh, uh, Minnesota, it expanded my worldview and my understanding of, well, just, you know, you leave the U.S. and you go live in Europe and you get, suddenly you're immersed in history and, and you take a broader view of things. And so that was helpful to me as well. Um, and I was able to return to Europe a few times. Uh, for I, well, I spent three summers in Florence writing a novel Um then uh, I was working in a high school and the day after school got out, I'd go to get on a plane, go to Florence the day before school started. I'd get on a plane, come back. And I did that oh, for three wow. summers. And uh, that was, uh, again, it, you know, sounds very romantic. And it was, it was wonderful. Uh, I wrote this novel, I rode my bike and I, you know, saw the sights and, and the art and uh, ate the food and uh, enjoyed the people of Italy um, or Tuscany. Um, 
So uh, those are a couple of adventures, I guess. <laughs> the Hemingway Summers of John Rosengren. Uh, yeah, I right. love it. Dante. Dante. Well, by then, by the time I got to Florence, I was early nineties, and I was into Dante. <laughs> ah, okay. I'd moved Wait. on. All right. Yeah, I'm very curious about Dante. Uh, we're, we're covering Dante on Art of Darkness later this year. Are you a Dante mm. scholar as well? I'm not. I'm not a scholar, but um, I did read um, the Divine Comedy in Flor- uh, Florence. And what's so cool about that is there's so much description, obviously, about the people and the political figures and stuff of, of Florence. And so I'm learning the history while I'm there. But he also some of the settings are, um, uh, you know, very familiar. Um, so, it, 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 yeah, it was a wonderful place to read Dante. Absolutely. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're, you're doing it right. Very cool. Are you are you working on something now? I know that's the thing Hemingway always said. Everybody asks the writer, "What are you working on right. now?" Well, I'm going to yeah. ask it. Yeah. Um. Pro- well, a couple of things. I'm I'm working on an article for Minnesota Monthly about the legalization of recreational marijuana because that's on the legislature's agenda and it looks like it's going to happen. And so I'm basically asking the question: Is this a good idea? And then I am working on an article for GQ about the Iditarod. And hmm. that'll start the, uh, the first weekend of March. And so I was up there last year uh, in February at a, one of the mushers, Kennels, a guy named Dallas Seavey, who is perhaps the greatest musher of all time. And um, then I went back to Nome, Alaska for the finish of last hmm. year's Iditarod. So I, this will be a 10,000 word long uh, narrative about the Iditarod and Dallas Seavey and the scandals hmm. and Blood dope, or do, doping of dogs and abuse of dogs and a father-son wow. relationship and uh, surviving in the wilderness. There's a lot there. What <laughs> what makes what makes a, a person a great musher? Well, Dallas Seavey, his secret, I think, is he's he's really good at working with dogs and training his dogs and getting. And, and understanding them and being able to get the most out of them and uh, manage his team through the course of a race. He's also a guy who's able to um, survive in awful conditions. So he says, the more miserable the conditions, the better I do. So um, he's he's just a really gritty, fierce competitor and mm. um, very smart uh, in the way he works with his dogs. And he works clean. He, he's no, well, no he doping. Got, yeah. He got busted ah. five years ago. And that ah. was the big scandal that rocked the world of sled dog racing. And he maintains his innocence. And um, there are those skeptics out there. Um, and some who go so far as to say, you know, it's sort of like uh, cycling. Everybody's doping, but only a few people get caught. Hmm. I had no idea this was going on. Fascinating. That That's going to be in GQ. Yeah, it'll uh, run in GQ uh, in March. Die- in March, yeah. very exciting. Yeah. Go well, ahead. if you were if you were a literary guy and you still are, you're an author. How did you get into journalism? Uh, it pays the bills better than uh, I mean. I did. I came out with a novel um, three years ago uh, called "The Clean Heart," um, and so I've had two works of fiction and eight books of nonfiction. Um, 
and it just uh, journalism is is a, uh, I earn more money <laughs> writing. And I mean, I, I got my start really writing as a journalist in high school, working for the high school newspaper. My high school journalism teacher was very nurturing and uh, encouraged me to freelance. And so I started to, and I've been freelancing for 40 years now. And he, um, but I, I like that um, chance to research different subjects and learn about them and write about them and tell a story. And magazine writing allows one to use those elements of fiction, you know, uh, creating a scene, having a narrative, creating and developing characters, using dialogue. So it, um, it, it's, it's a good blend, I guess, for me. <clears throat> I like that, John, because you're the real article, right? You, you get inspired by Hemingway and you don't just LARP. You actually, you really actually do it. So you you have some a great deal of standing. <laughs> I mean, because of course he was a journalist as well. I mean, that was what he was. That's what paid his bills until he he married a, a substantial amount of money. Um, yeah, Hadley had money too. The first wife had money, um, and, he, and he he sort of fibs a little bit. He you know about the poverty in Paris. Like apparently it was never he was never quite in in dire straits. I kind of want to return. To Hemingway a little bit, if you're willing, John. Um, yeah. So a couple of points about the, you know, your time in Rochester um, and also just generally the subject. So one, I believe the last time you and I spoke, you said you saw some and stop me if this is if I'm spoiling something, but you saw some of some amazing pictures of Hemingway uh, that are some of the last known photos that have that are not even published, which that just blew my socks off because uh for for a few years i was so immersed in hemingway so when you came to me and said that i just thought amazing and so these were some photos that you found at like doctors houses the family holds these or yeah this this was the fruit of one of those serendipitous moments that are just so wonderful for anyone who's done any reporting or research i was down in rochester had gone through the archives at the mayo clinic was having lunch with a friend who's lives in rochester as a writer and um, we're walking along the street and I'm telling him about this uh, article. And he says, well, let's go in here. And he turns and pops into the pharmacy and goes and asks the pharmacist, tell, says the pharmacist, this is my friend. He's doing an article about um, Hemingway. What do you know about Hemingway's time here? And the pharmacist says, well, didn't he go and stay up at the so-and-so house in Sunny Slope? At the, and uh my friend said, yeah, the one up on that, and then they figure out the one with the pool. Yeah, that's the one. So um, my friend says, oh, I happen to know the people who live there. Why don't we go over there? And so we go over there and the, they invite us in and start telling us the story that the previous owners <clears throat> had been, one of the guys had been a doctor at the Mayo Clinic and his son had been um, an, um, a resident and had been asked, a resident in a psychiatric unit, and had been asked to sort of babysit Hemingway on weekends. And so he'd bring him over there to his parents' home, and they'd have brunch or hang out at the pool. And um, those people had photographs, they had two photographs they showed me of Hemingway when he was hanging out there at the pool. And they were very interesting because one was him with the daughter and the son, and they were uh, the son who was the internist and, and his sister. And Hemingway it just looks morose, like this old, mm. he's, he's got just swimming trunks on, so he's bare chested. And he just looks so frail, 
you know, at this point he was about 170, 175 pounds. And um, because the doctor told him to lose weight and his natural weight was probably much closer to 200. So he looked, like I said, like a, an 85 year old man. And it, it it's almost impossible to believe looking at this photo that he's only 61 years old or 60, uh, 61, I guess. And it, so there's that photo and he just looks so broken and lost. And then there's another photo where he was actually shadow boxing with the sun and he's got this playful, fun, almost joyful expression on his face. And looking at that one, you think, how could it be that this man's going to kill himself in two months? And so these photos just blew me away. Um, and they were going to run in the paper or sorry, the magazine with my article until at the last minute, one of that guy, the, the internist brother, the internist is no longer living, but one of his brothers said, Oh no, wait, you can't publish those. And legally they could have, <laughs> the editor could have, but he didn't want to cause controversy. So he backed off. So oh. the world hasn't seen those pictures, unfortunately. Oh, that would that would be wild. Yeah, to to see those. Okay. Yeah, Very cool. That is some hardcore journalism. And uh, and that is so surprising that these photos still haven't been seen in the era of technology and Instagram, TikTok, and you know, they haven't been found or discovered or accidentally shared or anything like that, that they're still, you know, only you have seen them and and the family, which is really incredible. Yeah. It's really yeah. incredible. I and I just can't get over a young man being asked to babysit Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> right. No small undertaking at all. So, oh my goodness. I feel like that would be like every young guy's dream. I, I <laughs> to think just like so. spend the afternoon with Hemingway. Yeah. yeah. And yet, you know, it's like I had a I met Willie Mays um a few years ago. And when I was a young man, I uh, sorry, when I was a boy, I so loved watching Willie Mays. He was, I think, the greatest baseball player ever, but that's only because I never saw Babe Ruth play. But then I met him, and he was an old man, and he could barely see, and he was shuffling along the sidewalk in Cooperstown, and he was just, again, like Hemingway, this this man ravaged, whose body was ravaged by age. And it was so sad to look at him thinking, this is a guy who's become a legend because of his physical prowess and that's all gone now. And so to see him like that, there's something really sad. It's like the hero has died. And so I imagine that the internist taking care of Hemingway or asked the babysit Hemingway might've thought something similar, you know, that it's just so, and sorry, I think he was a resident at the time doing his residency, but to, to see Hemingway, you know, who was such a legend, because of his mind and his physical, again, um, maybe, uh, well, his physical exploits and, and embellished physical exploits, but to see him in that state, it must have been just heartbreaking. Well, and this dovetails into the, the second question I had uh, around this, which is whether or not there's an awareness in the families now uh, that maybe things would have been could have been handled differently in the past was there any talk about like among dr rome's family maybe regrets or any consideration for the fact that like the way they treated hemingway was probably and i'm not um i'm not trying to impugn the families here but if this was to happen now there's no way I, I don't care how much of a celebrity anybody is and in fact the fact that they're a celebrity now almost means that it, this would especially not happen 
patients aren't getting out of the site, you know, the locked up psychiatry ward to go hang out with with doctors and their families on the weekends. Not now. And it. mm, Yeah. Well, I mean, the the looking back, the things Mm -hmm. that we, you know, from our 21st century perspective, we see how the doctors treated him and were, I think, aghast. They, uh, Hugh Butt had him hosted a celebrity luncheon for him, you know, kind of trotted him out as this uh, celebrity guest to to pray in front of these other physicians. And um, they took him skeet shooting. This is a guy who had, you know, you put a gun in the hands of a man who was going to kill himself. Um, They served him alcohol at their homes. Um, And again, this is a guy who's an alcoholic. And uh, so some of the things they did, it just, it seems outrageous. You know, they allowed him to go for walks unsupervised. Um, But, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's easy looking back to be judgmental about that. And um, uh, so the families have not, I I don't think the families have said, yeah, oh boy, did we. Sure. Yeah. That I didn't mean it like quite like that. I maybe phrased it poorly. It's more a question of like, was there any talk about, I guess any of that, but it sounds like maybe, maybe not. Uh, but yeah, you know, it, and I, for, for people listening um, who are maybe only familiar with Hemingway of uh, familiar of uh, with Hemingway around maybe high school, right. Uh, you've read the old man in the sea and, you know, he was a writer who wrote about war and a big tough man. And that, you know, a lot of people, that's the extent of their Hemingway knowledge. This man had an Elvis like degree of fame. Mm-hmm. I was I was batting this around with some friends online recently and and someone asked, you know, is there any writer today that approximates this? And I said, no, no. The closest thing would be like Kanye West or something like that. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Kanye West, I don't think is a respectable. Thing. <laughs> no, of course not. Of course but, not. But I'm saying in terms of levels of levels of fame. Right. That's all I, I think yeah. Hemingway before social media, Hemingway went viral. I mean, mm. everybody seemed to know his name. Young men aspired to be like him. I mean, he was the John Wayne who set the standard of uh, what it meant to be a man. He defined manhood for an entire generation. And I don't see anyone doing that today. I think our attention spans are too short today to have anybody similarly hold our attention or captivate our imagination the way Hemingway did you know, in the thirties and forties for people. And so it's, um, and yeah, and even into the fifties, I think yeah. there, he's a, you know, sweet generis, uh, non pari, uh, one of a kind guy that we, we will not ever see replicated. It's incredible that he was able to come back with the old man in the sea after kind of being written off that he accomplished mm-hmm. that, that spare tight, story that it, it, it reads like scripture coming down from yeah. the heavens somehow just incredible yeah. you, mm. well and the scholars seem to dismiss it or the academics um they don't think it you know holds up to maybe um uh farewell arms or um sun also rises or um 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 <laughs> the Spanish book, uh, or the book about the Spanish Civil War, uh, uh for, for whom the bell tolls, for whom the bell tolls, of course, yeah. So, yeah. you know, they'll say it doesn't really hold up, those, but I really like the old man and the scene, like you said, yeah, it reads like scripture. I mean, there's this holiness to it, and this, 
um, it's so tight and it's a, I think it's a really powerful story. And so um, I, yeah, for him to, that, I do believe that was a comeback book in, in ways that um, maybe a dangerous or uh, the last article he wrote about bullfighting that was turned into a book or, or the a novel published. Death in the Afternoon. Yes, yes. But then the novel published after his death to was across the river and in the trees or something. Um, that, um, I, I think it, the Garden of Eden uh, or Garden across of Eden. the river yes. and into the trees was published in his life. And it was yeah, okay. And that, that was also a lousy book. But it was, it was, yeah, it's pretty yeah. rotten. Yeah. After his death. I mean, it's just so sad that, um, yeah, this was a guy who just, um, he had, he had written some clunkers, but he came back with the old man and seen, I think hit it out of the park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the last book he was working on is probably my, my favorite. And it's the one you mentioned. It's a movable feast. Uh, it's, I, mean, I wonder though, wasn't a lot of that written earlier? Like, you know, in the papers that were found at the, Ritz. yeah, he was, he was laboring over what he had already written. It's not, I don't think he was writing the chapters per se, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that was published published uh, posthumously with some very heavy edits from from Mary. And now there's a newer edition you can get that doesn't have Mary's heavy hand. It sounds like you, uh, John, you got your hands on a new copy or like a new volume of um, a biography about about Mary. Uh, right? Yeah. Um, you know. The for your readers at home, I'll hold it up to the screen. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> For your, all your listeners out there, no, Timothy Christian has written a book called Mary Welsh Hemingway, uh, Hemingway's or Hemingway's Widow, um, a biography of Mary Welsh Hemingway. And um, it's very well done. I, you know, I recommend it. Yeah, everybody raves about Hemingway's boat, uh, John, which is a, another biography of, of Hemingway, um, mm-hmm. one of one of many. Uh, well, so I have to ask, okay, so uh, just a, a fun as we're winding down, maybe five more minutes here. Um, well, John, do you, I don't know that you answered this. Do you have a favorite Hemingway uh, novel? Ernest. <laughs> no, my favorite novel. Um, I, I think The Sun Also Rises. Um, I, I really like, I mean, A Movable Feast was the one that made the biggest impression, as I, I said early on, um, though, as I read it now, you know, a little in my older age, it seems like a very mean-spirited book, <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, sort of uh, trotting out all of his resentments and and very unfair. So, um, and I have several stories, you know, like a clean. I was just in Spain um, over the holidays, and the story a clean, well-lighted place kept coming back to mind. And I was looking at these different cafes, thinking, could that be the place? Is that what Hemingway had in mind? And just understanding the importance of what he was going for there. Um, so there, there's certain stories that come back to me as well that I really like. Um, so. Um, Excellent. So as a Benny, shout out to SJU. Wait, you went to St. Ben's? Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I actually studied abroad in Spain and my sort of. Uh, Don Segovia. <laughs> ah, que bueno. Sí, sí, me gusta mucho. <laughs> Your hermana is in um, Garucha in this moment. Oh. She is a professor of English at the school. One school, primero? Primera? Primera, sí. Yeah, sí, con los niños. Oh. This is, it is like an alumni Hello, meeting no. happening. In, uh, <laughs> Sorry. Oh, but we know this. Yeah, you're listening to Mouthing Off on Frogtown Radio 94.1. <laughs> FM. How do you say FM and Espanol? Go on. Go on. FM. 
F-A-M-A. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you were saying, yeah. And no. And I think that's when, you know, because we were taking, uh, we were at the Universidad de Segovia and they, uh, we had talked a lot about Hemingway and I just had no idea about his, I knew that he had kind of reported on the, on the Spanish civil war, but not into, you know, the, the depth of his writing about it and journaling about it and letters and so that was my first hook into Hemingway was actually in Spain. And uh, yeah. I'm just wondering how many bullfights you attended if you're like really going on Hemingway's path here. Okay, so that was fascinating to me because when um, we were driving into uh, the small town like Vera uh, or other towns, as you approach a town, you see a bullfighting ring. It's sort of like in small town Minnesota where you might see you see the football field right? and the rodeo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it uh, that struck me. Um, but I really have a hard time with the concept of bullfighting and I don't want to watch that. So the answer to your question is zero. Zero. <laughs> yeah. Yo también. Um, but uh, I think but Hemingway is beloved there in Spain. And that was kind of new for me because I you know came to him through France and Paris and uh, as I read more about him and then being there, yeah, he's, he's beloved there. He right. really is. And I think that sort of he really embraced that machismo, mm-hmm. uh, that that sort of part of their culture. And uh, and I think use that to feed him and his uh, presence, if you will, uh, as he got older. Um, but, yeah, they really, really love him over there. I think much more so than than some um, then Americans know about him or appreciate his writing. Uh, so that makes me really happy, but. Yeah. This has been a great time. Yeah. John, go, go ahead. Well, I just say he lives on in Spain, right? Even if well, he's, he's a favor here with the me too movement, um, he lives in Spain still. He, he's not, he's siempre. not going, he's <laughs> not going anywhere in America either. As far as I'm concerned, John Rosengren, thank you for coming on. This has been mouthing off a, a real pleasure to have you, John. One final question real quick, uh, coming in at time. Hemingway Fitzgerald, who wrote the finer novel? I think we know who wrote the greater body of work, but who wrote the finer novel? Oh, I'm going to, um, you know, I love the great Gatsby. Um, but my heart's with Hemingway. So I'd have to say, yeah, what let's a say t- to whom the bell tolls. <laughs> what a title of the episode. My heart's episode with Hemingway. Title. Right. Thank you, John. The, the last pitch of the ninth inning. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Kevin and um, Mari and Amanda. It's great to talk to you. Real pleasure. Thank John. you so much. Great having let's, you. Let's Thank stay you. in touch. Come on anytime. You want to talk about something. All right. All right.